This episode is sponsored by the Adoption Connection Village, a place where you can connect with other adoptive moms who get it and be surrounded with support so you know you're not alone. We are really excited about the village because adoptive and foster parenting really brings unique challenges to families and a lot of people around us don't understand. And so we need to be surrounded by people who get us. Yes, that isolation is really the breeding ground for shame and guilt. And, you know, both of us have been to these dark places. I mean, I don't think either of us could have anticipated what this journey would cost us in our relationships, sometimes even with friends and family. It's very hard for people to understand what we're going through. Absolutely. But we do get it and we want to have a special place where we can really connect in a much deeper way as close as we can to actually be in person. So obviously we can't all gather around Lisa's Kitchen Island, but we have created something called virtual coffee chats and these happen over video chat and it's a whole group of us and it's been really, really fun to see your faces, get to know your stories and connect with you from on a much deeper level. We do these coffee chats in the village three to four times a month and we focus at least one of them a month on specifically the challenges of teens and young adults because we have heard from you guys that that is a space that needs a little extra TLC and support. So the village is for you if you feel like you need more people in your life who understand you, you crave authentic and intimate community, and especially if you don't have Facebook or you want to limit your time there, so you don't want to be in a group maybe that's based on Facebook. And I think the thing that's so important is that, you know, we know you are pouring your hearts and your souls into your kids, and maybe nobody is pouring back into you, but we want to do that. So besides the coffee chat, there is a group that's kind of like a Facebook group on steroids that allows you to really connect with other people on similar journeys and even has way to connect you to local in real life people close to you. Uh, as an extra bonus, I have a entire library of behavior plans and coaching around behaviors. And so village members get access to that as well. It's really a steal. It's $19.99 a month. It is open for a limited time. So the village will be open for new members until Friday, December 6th. So we would love to have you join us. You can join us at theadoptionconnection.com slash village. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Good morning, Melissa. Happy December. I hope your, your month is off to a great start. Thanks, Lisa. It's good to be with you. We recently had a listener write to us and they asked this. If we were sitting in a coffee shop, the one thing I would probably ask is, did you have family and friends supporting you? And where did your biggest support system come from? Well, that's such a good question. And Melissa and I, we're both going to share our experiences a little bit later in this episode. But one of the things that we've talked about a lot is how can the church support families as foster and adoptive families? And because we would love to see the church be a great support for people. So we called in an expert and interviewed her. We interviewed Jen Decker. And Jen grew up in an adoptive family, and she watched firsthand as her family became misunderstood and isolated in the church which prepared her to minister within the church context to foster and adoptive families. She has been learning this ministry at Westside Family Church in the Kansas City area for the past nine years. In her role at Westside, she serves both families within the church and in the broader Kansas City community. She collaborates with many other churches to equip and care for foster and adoptive families. Yeah, this interview was really fantastic, and I think you'll really enjoy how Jen speaks from her experience, even as an adoptive sibling. So here's your interview with Jen. Well, hi, Jen. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. It's nice to do this. You and I have um, known each other over 
a few years at least, maybe more, um, through speaking at conferences and being in the same place at the same time. And I know you mostly as a leader in the adoption and fostering community, but I know there's a lot more to you personally that we're going to get to hear about today. So will you take a minute and just introduce yourself to my listeners? Tell us just a little bit about what you actually do in your ministry at your church. Well, I am in Kansas City, and I work for a church. It didn't start out as a job, but I work for a church, and I lead a foster and adoption ministry, which is kind of a unique ministry for a church to have. It started probably about nine years ago, where I was just volunteering a lot, trying to connect with other foster and adoptive parents, and then I asked to go to some training, and then after I went to the training, I learned I needed more training and I became an empowered to connect parent trainer. And I started training parents on a weekly basis along with my husband. And then as that continued to grow, I started really seeing the ways I think God wanted to grow this ministry. And in our church at the time, we were in a really unique position in that we had a lot of, a a lot of pastors with adoptive connections, whether they were adopted from foster care or had adopted internationally or had done foster care in the past um, that were, I would say, warm and receptive to the idea of getting resources and support to families. And so as that grew, I started realizing I can't keep hiring babysitters to volunteer at this level. This isn't healthy for my family. And so it became a a small part-time position at church that's just continued to grow into now it's more, we do a lot within the church to support foster and adoptive families, but we also collaborate a lot with churches across the city and regionally so that we can get support to people. And that's been a really exciting turn that the ministry has taken. Oh, that is so wonderful. So what led you to get involved in adoption and fostering ministry? I mean, tell us a little bit of your own story. I do happen to be an adoptive parent, but my story starts way before that. It really starts, I think, in 1990 when my parents were watching some sort of like prime time or 2020 show. And they were seeing the conditions at orphanages in Russia and in Eastern Europe. And God spurred something in them to start pursuing adoption. And right around that time, as you'll recall, was the fall of the Russian government, a process that was two years in, got completely stopped. We didn't know what was going to happen. Um, But in 1994, my parents ended up bringing home my youngest brother, who was nearly five years old at the time, Um, from an orphanage in Russia. And my parents were very active in our church growing up. We were an active family. Um, Of course, we were, I think, in a church of a couple thousand people, we were the only family we knew adopting internationally. So there was a lot of excitement surrounding our family. I would say my parents were put on a pedestal, like, oh, that's the family that adopted the little Russian orphan, you know, those sort of things. Within a few months to a year, things started becoming more difficult at home with my brother. Um, I was off at college, so I wasn't necessarily there experiencing this right along with him. But what I watched is my very involved family start to become isolated in a way I never anticipated. And if you ask my parents now, they would say even a question of how my, how was my brother doing was enough to make them want to avoid church altogether because you can't unwrap the package enough to get understanding. Um, You can unwrap it enough to get some unhelpful advice or comments that bring shame to you. Um, And then there's the delicate matter of protecting this kiddo's story. But if you would, if you were to do an internet search of what resources might've been available in terms of counseling, literature, support communities for adoptive families in 1994, 1995, it didn't exist. The body of information that we have now as adoptive parents was created because of parents like mine who struggled in the early 90s. So I believe that God doesn't waste things. And I believe 
that's something he really used to give me a picture of what was missing for my parents and what was missing for a lot of foster and adoptive families in the church. Now, when your brother came home, how old were you? I was 18. Okay, so you were just like newly awake. Right. So when they started a plan to adopt my brother, I was, you know, in middle school adopting a child who my parents believed all this kid needs is love and an opportunity. We have that. We've raised two kids. We we know what we're doing. Um, There wasn't such an age gap, but due to the fall of the Russian government and just in general, the waiting and delays that are involved in any adoption, the age gap was much more than they anticipated. I do have another biological sibling in the middle of us. But yeah, I had just left for college um, within a month of them bringing home my brother. Now I only went to school about an hour away, so I was consistently there. But I think I was able to see what was happening with a little bit more distance than if I were living in the daily. And that that might have um, assisted in my ability to see the contrast between the family I left when I went to college and the family I came back to that first summer. Wow, I can imagine it. Uh, that must have been really dramatic. Now, your other sibling, you're the middle, the middle child, the youngest who became the middle. How old was that sibling? If I was eighteen, he was fourteen. They are ten years apart. Okay, okay. So he my was middle. 14. Yeah, my middle brother, when my parents um, brought home my youngest brother, was 14 years old, making them about 10 years apart. Who would you say you were most worried about when you started seeing these changes? Like, first of all, did you see them right away? Or was it sort of like you came home at Christmas and you things were getting, were rapidly changing? Um, yeah. So first of all, my brother acquired the English language. He came speaking all Russian. So these first changes that we're noting are, you know, the acquisition of language and new things and everything's exciting. And isn't it cute the way he runs around and hugs everyone at church and the way he wants to sit on everyone's lap. And because we didn't know any better, these, the boundaries to protect his attachment certainly weren't in place. Um, So there were lots of exciting, joyful things. Um, You've never seen a kid so excited to open up an ugly scarf at Christmas as this one. I mean, getting a gift was a big deal. So there were really, really joyous things. I think the first change I really started to observe with concern I had backwards, you know, because I am this enlightened 19-year-old with quite a few answers in this very rosy picture (laughs) of the world. Clearly, this kid is being over-medicated. Clearly, they need my opinion on different things. Um, But what I watched settle in was an exhaustion that seemed different than a normal tired. Instead of exhaustion that leads you to rest, it was an exhaustion, I believe, that led my parents to isolation and silence, if that makes any sense at all. It completely makes sense. It probably maybe took them into a more despairing place. Well, it certainly took them into a more despairing place. And part of what was so frustrating is you would, you would say, this is not right. This is not normal. And then you would try to go seek out a resource for whatever this was, whether it was a behavior, um, whether it was trying to bring someone over who um, spoke Russian and had some knowledge of where he came from to try to, glean more information as, as stories would come out about the orphanage in Russia or different things. And you would bump into things that were weird diagnoses. Um, well, he's schizophrenic. He has multiple personality disorder. He probably doesn't. He's six. He's six. But this complex developmental trauma diagnosis or this, this um, it's not even really a diagnosis, but it's more of a a concept that kids with complex developmental trauma display some of these behaviors and it's, it's a wiring that is repairable with the right kind of information, but that wasn't, that wasn't available. So, and then you heard from Christian counselors about 
prayer and certain verses and then other unhelpful people, in my opinion, you know, talked about the darkness in Eastern Europe and the spiritual warfare. And maybe, you know, there's needs to be some sort of exorcism of some sort, like the just crazy things that just made you not want to open your mouth at all. So when you would see weird behaviors, like he threw boiling water on the dog or he ran away at night across a, a very busy interstate when he was just a little boy, just different things that were strange. There's, there's no way to share a little bit of that without, you have to be willing to receive what people are giving you because you know, everyone's giving you things that aren't helpful. You just quit. Right. So what was your parents' experience then in the church? What eventually, now what, first of all, what type, how big of a church and what kind of support was there for them when they entered into this adoption process? And then how did you see that change? Well, it was a big church. It was a, you know, 1500 people. They taught a Sunday school class for 25 years, an adult Sunday school class. They taught an adult Sunday school class for about 17 years at the time of the adoption. Um, But there wasn't really a network of other adoptive or foster families, but there was enthusiasm. There was showers. There were, you know, lots of curious questions. There were people wanting to come over and see pictures. So there was a lot of interest, but it wasn't matched with the same level of support. And honestly, they wouldn't have known what to do. I mean, it, this isn't a knock on the church. There, there wasn't, there's not a handbook for this. There's not, there wasn't information available to the church to do it different. These were well-meaning people who really loved my family. But when, when everything boiled down, my parents felt really alone. So I believe that's the thing God used in my life um, to help prime me to be ready to respond at an appointed time for for serving foster and adoptive families in the church. Fast forward, we'd been married uh, 10 years when we were starting the adoption process and found ourselves expecting. And so we, we have one biological daughter and then we have adopted twice internationally after that. So I have three kids now and um, knowing that we needed to do community differently and knowing that no one was going to create it for me, I just started getting the information and I find that's what happens a lot is that we just seek each other out and we, we find a lot of connections that way because there's something to feeling like you're not alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. How do we combat this isolation? What, what do you do in your work? What do you see other churches doing that helps parents not feel so completely alone on this really challenging journey? Because we do have a lot more resources and a lot more information now, but even with that, this can be a lonely journey. Yeah. I find that families find themselves not just um, in a state of loneliness, but in a state of feeling really alone and alone sometimes can be a choice. You can choose to be alone, but the loneliness that you feel is almost never a choice. You don't, really choose to feel lonely. Sometimes you might choose to be alone, but when you are all alone because no one understands you and you're experiencing that desperation of feeling like no one knows what I'm going through. I'm the only person facing this or the loneliness of, I chose this. People warned me and I didn't listen. And now I'm without the resources that I didn't think I needed. I found myself in that place. I knew there was a lot of information that would have been helpful for my parents in adopting a five-year-old, but I didn't think it pertained to me in adopting a toddler, which is funny now because I'm a trauma trainer now. I have all this information now, but at the time I thought, oh, that would have been good information for my parents to have. I bet there's some people who really need that, right? (laughs) Not realizing it would play out in my own life the same way. It's a lonely feeling when you realize that as well. I think, there are, I think there are proactive ways that foster and adoptive parents can ask for support from their church that, don't, that to me don't seem as 
scary as I once thought. Can you give us some examples of that, how parents can ask for help from their churches? Well, I think one key thing to do is don't ask for the help by yourself. Sometimes it feels like you have to become a really squeaky wheel to get someone to accommodate you or to get someone to understand. Um, But I think anytime you can enlist an advocate on your behalf, and I think about um, that's what Jesus does for us. He's an advocate for us to the Father. And I think he gives us relationships in church so that we can ask an advocate. You don't have to let everyone in, but gosh, if you could have coffee with one person, a pastor's wife, um, the children's ministry director, a volunteer, someone in your small group that could then, because sometimes it's hard for us in the middle of what we're experiencing to even advocate for what we might actually need in that moment because we're so overtaken by the emotion and the anxiety of trying to handle everything at once that we're not sure how to advocate for ourselves, if that makes sense. So I think sometimes giving someone a glimpse into, go ahead, ball for two hours and say, I don't know what I need. Here's what's going on. The only thing that grows in the dark that I know of is mold. If you don't let any light into your situation, it can be really easy in the dark just to curse the fact that no one's helping you, no one's come to rescue you, even though if you had the presence of mind to admit, you might admit, I don't even even know what I need, but it isn't what anyone's doing right now, or it isn't nothing, and that's what seems like everyone's doing. But if you can let enough light in to share your situation with one trusted person and ask them to be an advocate for you, I think the church needs those advocates. I think foster and adoptive parents need those advocates, and it can't always be us. Even if you get one person who says, well, like that you chose this or, you know, Mm -hmm. we told you it was going to be hard. I don't know what you were thinking. That can just shut a parent down, you know, make them so afraid to ask for help when really they do desperately need it. Right. And I think the other good thing about an advocate is that there are so many different ways someone can help. It's not, you know, people might think, oh, they're going to want me to take care of their kid. That might not be what you need at all. And there may only be one or two people you could even ask that of anyhow, but- There might be something else you could do, like um, a a while back, there was a young mom in a small group I was in who was just really, really overwhelmed. And I said to her, well, can I do your laundry for you? And that's a little weird, but you know what? I actually really like doing laundry and I work from home and actually right behind me right now is my laundry room. And so it was, it was kind of a joy for me, you know, to be able to do that was so simple, but she didn't know what she, she would not have ever asked somebody no. to do that. You know, she wouldn't have thought of that. So I think an advocate can actually talk to people about what, what are your gifts? What are you, what would work for you? Which the, the adoptive parents themselves cannot like negotiate with people about what they, what they can do for them. You know, I think it, it would free up the possibility of asking for things that are maybe a little less common or usual. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think another way to enlist the resources of your church to to help you, to educate and to provide information for. Because, for example, I host a large conference for foster adoptive parents. And two weeks ago, I offered a pastor's lunch. I gave pastors free lunch and said, come learn about a way to support the foster and adoptive parents in your congregation. All I did was educate them on what parents will experience, on why it's important, and some of the feelings that parents have. Everyone leaned in. They were really, really, they knew they didn't know. And they were open to receiving information. I bet they'd be less open to come to lunch and hear what they're doing wrong. And I think sometimes in our emotion and in our frustration, we can be I can be critical. I know I can be critical and it can come out as criticism. But if I am more proactive and take, take the approach that I have the opportunity to provide insight, then, then they can ask different questions about the support that we need. 
So we've recently learned about a concept called care communities, and I've heard the term wraparound support, wrapping around foster and adoptive families um, a lot of times. So far for us in ministry, it has, it seemed a little bit artificial, like find a list of people willing to bring meals and then call them and ask them to bring them to this foster or adoptive parent that they don't really have a relationship with. And while it might meet the need, it isn't really wrapped in the context of care the same way um, this concept of care communities is. How care communities work is that a group of people, it works best if there's like a Sunday school class or a small group, they kind of agree to wrap around a foster adoptive parent for a year. But every person's gifts might be different. And so there might be people who are willing to provide a casserole, which is great. And there might be people who are willing to do laundry. Um, we have a care community in our church now that's serving someone that realized it's really hard for this mom to get her car to the shop. She's a single mom. They didn't pay for the car repair. Two guys went over to her house, picked up the car, took it in for the repair and brought it back for her. The logistical situation of being out of car and not having a secondary form of transportation, they just lifted that burden from her. So that has been a great concept that we've been implementing where we take a look at every need this foster adoptive family has. And then we say, okay, in a, this group of people, which of these needs can you meet on a consistent basis? And they might not be able to meet the needs of guitar lessons for Johnny or math tutoring, but she has laundry every week. She can stick her laundry out on the porch on Mondays and it'll be back by Monday night. You know, different things like that that are really supporting the family. Now mom has space to think about, okay, how do I get everyone to their therapy appointments? Or now that that's off my plate, I can do other things. So that's been a really effective way that proactively as a church, we've sought training and expertise in, and there are people who are doing this nationally that can train you and how to really make this thing sail. So that's been helpful to us. It's harder to ask for. However, if you're in a Sunday school class, it's okay to say, I'm struggling. Here, here are the things that are, are hard. What could you guys help me with? That's okay too. That's you asking for help for yourself. Unless you say something people don't know. Right. Now, um, the care community training is through an organization. Can we put a link in the show notes for that in case people want to know more about that? Yes. The organization is Promise 686. It's out of Georgia. They have different bridge organizations that take their material and train it around the country. So I think their promise is, or their website is Live the Promise. Okay, great. And for you listeners who might be driving or taking care of kids, that will all be in the show notes for sure. So you can find it later. Well, that's a beautiful model. I like that a lot. And really, it takes so much. Um, it sort of it validates the parents and also removes some shame. Because they're, I think one of the things I struggled with was I felt so needy, like in not a good way. And yeah. I had some wonderful people who came around me. And I'm, I don't know what we would have done without that help and support. But having a, a group that's committed to you, what an amazing thing that would be for adoptive and foster parents. I love that. Well, and there's a lot of people who feel really strongly about adoption and foster care who are never going to adopt and who don't plan to take children into their home. Mm -hmm. But they are eager for a way to serve I do believe the body of Christ is resource enough and big enough to meet the needs of our challenging families. It's just the disconnect between connecting those resources and that heart with the needs. And it's really hard if the needs aren't understood or verbalized, which is why it's important to say something yourself or appoint an advocate. Mm -hmm. That's great. What about the experience of parents actually coming to church with, you know, maybe they've been coming for years and they maybe have even had kids who've just hopped into kids' ministries and been happy and they bring home a new child or children 
and things have changed. How can the church help those families still feel welcome in their own church home? Oh, I have a lot of opinions about <laughs> how churches. Really? I'm so surprised. <laughs> about how churches can do this well. Now, this is more what I think churches should do. It's probably hard to ask a church to do this. So, um, but I do basic compassionate caregiver and trauma trainings at churches all over town to help understand why transitions can be hard and help nursery volunteers understand it's actually not okay to leave this child here screaming while mommy walks away. Um, that's an education piece. Some of those materials um, are out there you can find. But man, if you are working with a therapist, and I hope we're all working with a therapist at some mm-hmm. level, just that's me personally. I just feel it has been so beneficial for me and for our family. But if they're ever able to resource your church in that way to educate, another big thing to educate on is this just because he wants to hug and kiss everyone here, it's actually okay to reject that. And it's really important that you do. And that's been an education piece. And so there is an old article. You can find it online. I think it's called, you could just Google it. It's called walk a mile in a baby's booties. And it talks about the disruption of caregiving and why things might be so scary. And it takes, one minute to read. And I feel like it is such a compassion builder because in order for people to respond with compassion, they have to have the information to view it differently. We have to hand them a different set of lenses with which to look at what our families are walking through. Um, So that's really important. Anything you can do to help educate your church staff. And then also let yourself off the hook. If your church has an online service, and that's what you need to do, then that's okay. And you actually don't have to explain that to everyone. If you have always volunteered in the youth group and you can't right now, that's okay. You don't owe anyone an explanation. You can just say, this isn't going to work for our family right now. I feel the need to always do everything 100% and do it forever, right? Like, well, we always, I always help with this. I always do this. And I've had to give myself permission to back off some things and just say for this season, we can't, I have a kiddo who will not go into children's ministry. I work the church. It would be possible that I might feel a little embarrassed that for some reason he doesn't participate. However, we've had to make that choice as a family. We're not we're not pushing this with him. He can, he can sit with us in church or we can make adjustments sometimes. So a lot of this has to do with me being okay with it, not looking like what I thought it was going to look like, mm-hmm. which might be the theme for my life. <laughs> then becoming okay with accepting that her life does not look like what she thought it was going to look like. Yes. We talk about the concept of radical acceptance. Yes. Oh, so hard because I think, you know, we, we go into adopting and fostering because our hearts, and I, I think for those of us who are believers, you know, like we feel strongly led by God to do this and the reality of our lives after we bring children, traumatized children home compared to what we thought is often very, very different and when we come to a place where we can radically accept that, I think that's where some healing can come. And, and so many of us, including me, get just trapped in shame, you know? Like, if I were different, maybe this would be different. Or did I hear, you know, are people asking you, are you sure God wanted you to do this? Like, whoa, such a horrible, horrible thing to say, you know? Uh, you already have the kids. So let's not even, let's not go there. How does that help anybody, right? Right. And with that, there's a radical acceptance of how the world and the church responds to you. You expected them to show up differently. 
You expected them to anticipate your needs. You expected them to stay compassionate after your kiddo's been home eight years and still won't go in the children's program. And so sometimes it's our expectations of the world around us that we either need to decide, can I influence change here? Can I advocate for myself and my child in a different way? And if I can, then what, what is the best pathway to do that? And if, if right now the most important thing I do is circle the wagons here, then I need to accept that these people are doing the best they can. Yes. How often do you hear of families making the choice to, to change churches, to go to a different church? Because they yeah. just don't feel they fit anymore or can't get the support or help they need. Do you hear that much? I do hear it. Um, I feel like I hear it less often than I used to. I think there might be a couple reasons for that. And sometimes I hear it from people who are on their third, fourth, and fifth church. If that's happening, it might be worth sitting down with someone that you can trust to be honest with you and just say, these are my expectations. These are my hopes. Are these reasonable? And you might find that they have those same expectations and hopes that are going unfulfilled. There's, there's not a perfect scenario. Um, of the families that we serve in our church ministry, I would say only about half attend our church. Um, a lot are from outside the community. And part of that is the size of our church. Our church is pretty big, you know, three to 5,000 people. We have different resources than some churches have. Well, it's not necessarily needed that every church carve out a little foster and adoption ministry. I I see the kingdom of God as being really open-handed so that if there's a resource at another church that I can take advantage of that fills that tank for me and gives me those connections, then maybe I can go back and participate in my own church differently because I, I'm not putting these expectations on them that they couldn't fill. And now I can't participate in this body. And so I do hear about it. And I, and I know there are also some people probably listening who have a really valid reason to leave their church or who have been really wounded in a way that their child was so misunderstood or so mistreated or the support promised was not delivered. And I have, I understand that too, but I do think that it's okay to seek out those communities and other places and accept that your church is doing the best they can. So if a family's continuing to attend their own church on Sundays and things, what kinds of things do you offer that, you know, that, that maybe a larger church, like we, we both have friends at a large church in the Seattle area that mm-hmm. has a very active adoption and fostering ministry. And I know there are other large churches. What kinds of things could parents sort of tap into without feeling like, oh, this isn't even my church. I feel, you know, give us some ideas. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. So um, for example, our church, our child care policies are super restrictive. Okay. So there's really not a scenario other than like vacation Bible school in the summer where children would ever be on site that their parents wouldn't be there. So I believe in respite nights. I believe they're a fantastic thing. It's not something our ministry is able to provide because of because of those restrictions with the use of our building and, and how we take care of things. However, there's a church a few miles away that does these fantastic respite nights. So we send, and they share their flyers with us, and we send our families there. We'll even supply them with some volunteers. We'll say, hey, could you volunteer? We need some volunteers for this. And they may not have the Becoming a Trauma-Confident Caregiver training that, that we offer on a regular basis. So then they would say, Hey, well, you're here at Respinite. Here's a training coming up for you. So there's a lot of collaborating that's happening. Um, what 
couple of the things that we do is we offer a monthly support network. This has been fantastic. This has been going on for nine years. For the first Thursday of every month for nine years, we have hosted a foster adoption support network. It has grown over time. It's created opportunities for volunteers to serve in our church. We have a whole childcare team that I've taken and trained in being um, trauma-competent caregivers so that our kids are in a safe place. We make sure the parents get training hours while they're there. And then we have another volunteer team that provides a potluck dinner for the parents. So the parents can come the first Thursday of every month. We feed their kids pizza downstairs. We feed the parents a home-cooked meal upstairs. Um, we usually have a speaker or um, a guided discussion so that the parents are getting support that they need. So we do that monthly. We do, um, we have a kinship support group. So for families, you know, it's one thing to choose to become an adoptive or foster parent. It's another thing to get a phone call at midnight that your brother's in jail and his three kids are going to go into state custody. Do you want them? Um, and they need the same information as our foster and adoptive parents, but they didn't get to, they got to choose this in a way, but there's a different sense of obligation and, and boundaries that they need to, to do to protect their family. Um, so we offer a kinship support group on a monthly basis. Um, we also offer a mom's night out once a, once a month where our moms just get together at a restaurant. We call it a support group if you want. We laugh, we cry, we, but we provide ongoing opportunities to be around one another. And all three of those opportunities are at most 50% members of our congregation or participants in our church. That's a community thing. That's wonderful. That's what a gift. What a gift to your community and your people. So we've talked about what parents can do if they're needing help. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the greatest points you said is to find someone who has compassion and someone you can really deeply share with who can then be your advocate. Yes. That's so important. Mm -hmm. And they can be your advocate in your own church community, but you would also encourage parents to look beyond their own churches and see if there's another church in the community that's offering support that they can join in with so that they're not, you know, so, so we're not putting this heavy weight on our own churches to all of a sudden develop this ministry right now because we need it. Right. There might be, it might already be happening somewhere else. Right. Well, and the other thing too is um, you don't want to feel like you're cheating on your church, right? So it can <laughs> feel that way. However, I think to give your church the opportunity to be a part of that for you is really important. So I think you could say, hey, we're going to go to this overnight conference for foster and adoptive parents. Here's the information. We're so excited to go. We know of two families in the church that this would really benefit. Would you send us? So their church now, even though they didn't have the support to offer them, has become a part of them getting the support that they need. So it's a way to just kind of flip the script on that relationship. So now it's not me saying, come to our church. We're going to support you. It's me saying, how can I help your church get you here? What, what do you need? Can I advocate for you? We do that all the time for our conference. I will call up the pastor and say, this family's asked for a scholarship. I have never had a pastor turn me down yet. I've had really? to say, thank you so much for telling me. And then the pastor gets to be a part or the ministry leader, or whoever it is at their church gets to be a part of saying, how did that go? What did you learn? How can we, how can we help you? You know, just mm. that feels very loving coming from their church. Now they didn't have to go somewhere else, get a scholarship from them, but they were able to come. So we do that with our support groups too. I let other churches know, um, hey, we have this going on. We'd love to support your families. Will you tell them? Anytime another church tells them about something going on at our church, it's their church being a part of the support to them. Oh, that's a great point. That's a good point. All right. Well, is there any final thing you want to say? No pressure now. Um, but is, is there anything you want to encourage families 
or if someone's listening and they maybe aren't an adoptive parent and they just think, wow, maybe I should do something in my own church. You, you can go any direction with this, but is there anything you want to share before we wrap up? I think um, I, I called my mom before this podcast and I said, mom, what is, if you could have told the church one thing, looking back, what would it have been? And at that moment, she, she got emotional and she just said, even now, I can't think of what the one thing would have been. There was just so much. And I think um, understanding that you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to know exactly what to ask for, but that you're not alone when you feel like, I don't know what I need, but I know I feel alone. I think those are really powerful words to share with another human Mm -hmm. that evokes an empathy and a compassion because even if they're not an adoptive parent or a foster parent, we've all had the experience of feeling alone. And I think that connects. That's when something connects deep inside of me that connects with something deep inside of you where you put a person in a position to listen. Um, And sometimes all you needed was to shed enough light and that aloneness. But saying it out loud is really hard, even for my mom, almost 30 years later. Uh, those are good words. Just when you started to say that you asked your mom this, it just choked me up. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's just, these are hard things. They're just, it's hard. It's, yeah. it, we all have gone through these really, well, most of us, very overwhelming times of feeling like there's no way. I can get through each day because it's just too much. So, yeah. Well, I love the work you're doing. And this was actually just so fascinating to me because I got to learn so much more from you today about the ministries and um, it's wonderful. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. really appreciate Jen's story as I was listening to it and thinking about her as a sibling in an adoptive family. It really gave me a lot of hope because I know that sometimes one of the hardest parts of this journey is watching our kids, whether they be our kids by birth or just other adoptive kids who aren't struggling as much, kind of get caught up in the whirlwind of some of the crisis and the chaos. It's nice to hear the other end of the story. And I say this a lot that, you know, our, our family stories and our kids' stories aren't over until they're over. And, you know, to be able to look back at Jen's experience as a sibling and then see how that really was preparing her to do amazing work in support of foster and adoptive families now, because she brought with her this experience of really understanding how hard it was. And so I can't help but imagine and hope that some of us with really hard stories and the siblings that have gotten caught up in them you know, that God's preparing them to do really amazing work in the decades to come. Yeah. I don't think that God wastes anything, you know, he doesn't waste our suffering. And so I do find, I also found this very encouraging to hear her whole story from being a child in her family to now having this amazing ministry. So Lisa, when you guys were kind of in the midst of your hardest and even now, because you know, we're neither one of us are in crisis right now, but we're still kind of walking the day-to-day hard of kids with really challenging behaviors. Where do you draw support from? Where have you guys found the most support over the years? Well, I would say in our deepest, most, most difficult times, we got, we had support from our families and things, but we don't live near any family. And what we desperately needed was, you know, help right here in our community. And fortunately, we had a circle of friends. We still have a circle of friends that were, some of them were from our church, but not all. But we had a few very good friends who walked through this with us. And, you know, some of them had the capability to, help us practically more than others because, you know, some of my friends had a whole bunch of younger kids and some of them were adoptive parents as well and dealing with their own stuff. But that close circle of friends, I don't know what we would have done without them. 
because we could call on them at a moment's notice when we really needed help. And I also had, in terms of support, a really a number of dear friends that were further away, but one in particular that I could call anytime and just get encouragement and prayer to carry me through. Yeah, we had, I would say, kind of different pools of support as well, which we're super blessed with. We were one of those families that did feel really isolated by the church. And so our support did not come from a formal church setting, but we had developed relationships from our church community that turned into this little small group that really walked by us through our hardest years. And then we also had a community locally of adoptive families that we had connected with. And, you know, those were kind of like those catch 22 families because they were a lot of them in the same kind of crisis that we were, which was a blessing and a curse. It was a blessing because they knew exactly what we needed, but it was hard to accept help from them because we knew that they were also experiencing similar things. I mean, we would often swap, you know, vigils in emergency room, waiting rooms, waiting for our kids to get beds with each other. You know, one friend would be with me while I waited one week. And then the next week I'd be back while she waited for her, you know, child. And so it was kind of crazy, but still a huge blessing. And I would say that the other thing that was really helpful is we were able to kind of open our lives, especially to our small group. We hosted just because it was hard for us to all go anywhere. And, but I was something in me, I don't know what it was, it was the grace of God allowed me to open up our home, even when it was way less than perfect. It definitely wasn't clean. Our kids were not well-behaved, but we just said, come. And these people came and they didn't judge us and they hung out with us. And I think that allowed us to keep some of these relationships going um, when it felt like we probably didn't have the margin for it. That is wonderful. Really, it's the friendships. And I, I think it's, if we can build off friendships that existed before we adopted, that that's really, really nice. But sometimes we can make new friends that in this process that can be with us through it. And I'm so thankful for those relationships too. So if you are really just looking to connect with folks, remember that the village is still open through the end of this week. Um, But we also have a free Facebook group. So we would love for you to connect some way to us and feel supported, even if you don't feel like you have super local support. So you can find our Facebook group at theadoptionconnection.com slash Facebook. And you can find more information about the village where we get really, really close and hang out more in person with y'all um, at theadoptionconnection.com slash village. All of that will be in the show notes as well as places to find Jen and um, some of the ministries that she mentioned. So all of that will be at theadoptionconnection.com slash 64. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.